Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Deborah Carlisle-Solomon about her book, Baby Knows Best, Raising a Confident and Resourceful Child, The Rye Way. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Um, Deborah, I wonder if we could begin the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Uh, I, I now live in Los Angeles but I actually grew up back east in Boston and New York and also London. And I discovered Rye when my son, who is almost 17, when he was about a year old, I discovered a book by Magda Gerber called Your Self-Confident Baby. And I was so intrigued by the title because I thought self-confident baby? This is very curious. I was so intrigued that I found my way to a Rye Parent Infant Guidance class, and it just transformed the way I looked at babies, the way I perceived my son. I felt like I saw him as if for the first time, and I was so fascinated and taken by it all that I really changed courses, and I I studied more, and I became a Rye instructor, then I was the executive director of Rye for eight years until the end of 2014 because I wanted to get back to the speaking and teaching and and consulting part of it, which is what I do now. It's what I like to do best. So that's me. How did you come to write the book? Well, Mata has two books, Dear Parent and Your Self-Confident Baby, and it seems like the time was right for a new, more current book about Rye. And also when I was the executive director, I became more and more painfully aware of how many people didn't have access to classes. Um, And so I wanted to write a book that would be a guidebook for somebody who couldn't ever go to a class and see the approach modeled by a facilitator. So I intentionally... Um, have language, not any scripts. Of course, people have to speak authentically, but some language I tried to, you know, make it as, I didn't want it to be abstract. I wanted someone to be able to turn to it and say, okay, this is the kind of language I could use when I diaper my baby or when I'm feeding my child, etc. So I wanted to write a different kind of book that I thought would be, would have been useful to me before I found my way to a class. Now, you, you mentioned Magda Gerber. Um, who was she, and uh, how did she come to create the resources for infant educators or the Rye approach to parenting? Well, Magda Gerber was originally from Budapest, Hungary, and when she was there, when her children were young, she was fortunate enough to meet a pediatrician named Dr. Emmy Pickler, and Dr. Pickler really transformed how Magda 
saw babies and became the family pediatrician. Then Magda went on to study with Dr. Pickler. She also uh, did other studies of her, of her own and became an infant specialist herself. And during the Hungarian Revolution, um, Magda and her family fled Hungary and eventually made their way to the United States. And she said she felt so fortunate to have met Dr. Pickler and to have studied under her guidance and, and really learn how to care for her children as well, that she wanted to share what she learned with parents here in the United States. But Dr. Pickler's focus had shifted to children in, in an orphanage. And Maud's focus was on parents and families, intact families. So she, she took what she learned from Dr. Pickler and um, she added to it, uh, it's not as though she only taught Dr. Pickler's theory because to say that would be, I think, to diminish the contributions of each of them because both Pickler and Gerber made significant, unique contributions that were all their own. But she originally, then she eventually, I should say, found her way to Los Angeles, Magda did, and uh, taught parent-infant classes. The very first class was in somebody's garage in Silver Lake. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and Rye was very grassroots for many years. Um, and she taught parents and professional caregivers, and, you know, eventually it grew and grew. Um, and she passed away in 2007, and Rye is growing strong, which I think is a testament to the value of her approach. It's not a, you know, it's not a fad. It's been around mm -hmm. for 40 years now, over 40 years. Um, the sort of veracity of what she was teaching, it, it will endure, and there are more and more people who are studying and, and learning how to teach it, which is wonderful. You mentioned earlier, um, one thing that inspired you to write the book is that um, times have changed. It's decades have passed since Magda Gerber published her own work on the Rye approach. Um, can you say a little bit more about um, how parenting has changed and why um, new topics or scenarios needed to be covered? Uh, I think perhaps parenting has become more complex because I think for many parents, their lives are busier and more harried than they were maybe 30 years ago or they would have been. Um, sometimes both, most of the time, both parents working, children being in childcare, uh, sort of the pressures of modern life. And, um, but I, I think that whether Maja was speaking to parents 30 or 40 years ago or, or those of us who practice Rye, speaking to parents now, there's certain fundamental truths that I think uh, remain the same. And for for us, what Magda talked about was the importance of respect. How do we interact respectfully with a baby from the very beginning of life? And I've never met anyone who, who's said, oh, respect, that's not very important. I don't have to treat my child with respect. Luckily, Everyone I've, I've met has agreed with that. But what does it mean? What does it look like, for mm -hmm. instance, to pick exactly. up pick up a baby respectfully, to set a limit with a defiant toddler respectfully? Magda's brilliance, I think, was taking um, maybe these theoretical ideas mm -hmm. and distilling them down into practical 
ways that that we can interact with the child, that we can begin to practice, that help the parent, the adult, the caregiver to feel more confident and the child to feel more secure. And of course, when a child feels secure, they're less irritable, they're more cooperative and cheerful and everybody, everybody benefits. And then I think is one of the strengths of your book is that while it's not scripted, it is practical and uh, it covers a range of situations in which parents might find themselves and talks about um, how to go from the theoretical um, being more respectful, for example, towards your child into putting that um, into action. One example that I give that it's, that's very modern, and, and Magda certainly wouldn't have been speaking about this 30 or 40 years ago, but it's the cell phone yeah. um, that so many of us are overly attached to. And so the idea, one um, one way in which we talk about respect is the importance of giving the child our undivided, unfractured, undistracted attention, particularly during caregiving routines of feeding and diapering and bathing, etc. that those routines, by their very nature, they're intimate. Mm -hmm. So the difference between, well, I care enough about you that, of course, I'm going to feed you. But the difference between that and I care about you deeply, therefore, I'm going to give you my full undivided attention. And not only will I not answer my cell phone, it won't even be in the room. It won't be visible. So the message being sent is, is very, very different than when the child sees or feels or has the experience and knows that there's the potential that they're going to be interrupted by a phone that apparently is more important or more interesting than they are. Does that mean that we have to be available to them all day long? No. Magda taught about the, the difference between giving a child our full attention part of the time rather than divided or fractured attention all day long. And a lot, or some of these other approaches uh, tell parents or adults that you must be available all the time. Well, that's unrealistic. And that's also not modeling self-respect. Mm -hmm. Nobody can give their full attention to somebody or all day long. But during the caregiving piece, those intimate interactions, how important it is so to give to give full attention like that. And that also people feel like, okay, I can do that. <laughs> That's doable. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think for a lot of parents with, with children, um, maybe older children, that situation makes a lot of sense intuitively. Uh, my child sees me on the phone. Um, they, they want to spend more time with me. And so when I'm with them, I'll be fully present because they can appreciate that. Um, they'll like that better. Um, that will help our relationship. Can you talk a little bit more about why this is so important with babies? Um, so a lot of adults may not think that uh, babies know what's going on or they'll remember this. Um, so they might say, uh, however callous this sounds, like, what is the point? Um, why can't I hold my baby in one arm and text in the other? For example, uh, what would you say to someone who raises a question like that? I would say that a baby is observing you your nonverbal communication all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's observing what you're looking at, what interests you, uh, the, the touch of your hands. Are your hands gentle or are they heavy? Are they rough? Or, or are you sort of un in such another world that your hands are rough as if the baby is more of an object rather than a, a person you 
care for deeply. Um, so the baby is very aware of all of our nonverbal and verbal communication. And a young baby, too, a, a child in the beginning of life, so much of their sense of self is, is forming mm-hmm. and is in one way or another by what is being reflected back to them. So if I'm I'm feeding the baby because I don't want the baby to go hungry, but I'm fascinated by my cell phone, the message I'm sending is, yeah, I care for you, but you're not that enticing. Um, That's very different than I I want to give you my attention now because I'm curious about you and I feel engaged with you. And this emotional exchange we're having is very important. It's important to both of us. So we talk about the sense of the child during the caregiving routine, the feeding, for example, a baby, about not only is it about feeding the baby so the baby is no longer hungry, but it's an opportunity for what we call emotional refueling. So the baby feels full emotionally and then may be able to be more content spending a few minutes on their own playing or laying on their back, enjoying looking at the leaves or the trees or whatever it might be. It obviously depends on the age of the child and and also on their temperament. So it sounds like we are constantly signaling to others what it is that we value. And whether we realize it or not, um, we are uh, affecting their self-esteem and what they will come to value as they get older. Um, And I'm sure Mm -hmm. we'd rather have our children value other people um, above their, their technology, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think it's also important because I, I, I know sometimes people have responded, oh, this sounds terribly precious, but that's impossible. I work, I have to get two children out the door in the morning, et cetera, et cetera. Um, see if there is one diaper change or one feeding during the day that you can give full attention and take your time, really take your time and see what the difference is for your child, if you observe a difference, if it feels different for you. Um, and if, for instance, your toddler is irritable, sometimes parents think, oh, you know, I can't stop to address this. So I have to get out the door and go to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean stop what you're doing for 20 minutes. It could mean getting down on the floor with your child for one minute and, and making an emotional connection. That's very often what's happening when a, a baby or a toddler particularly is, is irritable if, if it's not because of hunger or fatigue. They need that they need that emotional connection. And sometimes now when when our lives are so busy, that's the piece that gets missed. People are rushing about and uh, it's very hard for babies and young children to keep up with that pace without at some point falling apart because life is moving too quickly for them. I, um, I, I first heard about your book a few years ago. Um, there was an article published in Vanity Fair, and it was called Childhood's End. And um, yes. I, I thought the article kind of implied that the Rye approach to parenting stems from beliefs that children's needs are the same as the needs of adults and that the abilities of children are generally underestimated. But after reading your book, I, I would actually characterize it slightly differently or the right approach in, in my understanding it's that children's needs should be taken as seriously as the needs of adults and children should be given the same respect as adults and is, is that fair characterization 
I think it is a fair characterization. I found that article to be quite inaccurate, uh, and that's probably why it garnered so much attention, Mm -hmm. because a lot of what it said was so far off base and just kind of sounded kind of crazy, quite frankly. I think if there's any confusion, the root of it might be that we, uh, we say that even a very young baby has a level of competence, and that perhaps got misconstrued to be that a baby is, comp- is as competent as an adult. What we mean is a newborn baby, for instance, has the ability to cry, to mm-hmm. let the adult know, I have a need, I'm uncomfortable, or I'm hungry, or something. Something I need something from you. So they're not completely and utterly fragile and helpless. And so through observation, which we, we practice, for instance, in our parents and guidance classes, parents discover really how much more competent their babies, their toddlers are than they would have imagined. And this is important because we care for our children based on how we see them. We respond to them based on how we see them. So if I believe that a child is basically helpless, I'm going to respond to him in a different way than if I think he has a level of competence and, for instance, a level of tenacity. I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. There There was a baby who was at the stage of, he could roll over onto his belly and stretch his arms out in front of him, but he couldn't crawl. He couldn't move yet. He couldn't move forward. So he was reaching for an object that was right beyond his fingertips and he couldn't quite make it. And he never looked to his parent for help. He spent 40 minutes looking around the room at the different objects at the light fixtures at the people in the room. And he was very content for 40 minutes. A week later, he came back to class. Same thing. He reached for something. He couldn't quite get it. And we observed as he, with his palm, he palmed the sheet that was covering the surface where he was laying. He palmed it and he got it in his grasp and he picked it up high enough so this toy rolled toward him. And his mother said, he's been working on this and perfecting this for a week. He can't get anywhere yet. So he's figured out how to lift the the fabric so the objects roll towards him. And he was very young, but he was tenacious. And he had practiced this because nobody had come to his rescue. His parents trusted that if he, he was curious and... Uh, let's see what happens. They didn't assume that he would fall apart or become frustrated or, you know, I mean, if he got upset, they would have picked him up and given him a cuddle and they hung in there with him and they just waited to see what would happen. Very often, Magda would say, well, let's wait and see. Let's observe. Instead of making an assumption that a child's going to become upset, become frustrated, become bored, etc. Why should we assume anything? Let's observe and see what happens. Conversely, a child years ago, same stage of development, first class, reached for something, couldn't reach it, tried to reach for it, wasn't even 10 seconds, looked over her shoulder and made a sound to her mother that 
really conveyed, oh, can you get this for me? And her mother pushed the object toward her. So this was a five-month-old who had learned to give up because the well-intentioned parent had, had gotten into the habit of helping so often. Oh, you, it looks like you're looking at that toy, so I'm going to bring it closer so you can hold on to it, which most of us would do. Most of us would do that because we assume, well, there's a toy just beyond her reach. Poor thing. She needs to have it. But most babies will turn and find something else to look at that fascinates them. We make uh, an assumption because as adults, we're goal-oriented kind of thing. So um, so that could have been, going back to the article, that could have been misinterpreted. We, we certainly don't think babies should be treated like adults. That's crazy. Babies are babies. <laughs> but um, well, That was uh, an, another thing to mention, not to dwell on the article, but it's accompanied by a <laughs> photograph of uh, a toddler reading a newspaper article about social security, <laughs> right? And so right, right. It, it seems like a lot of adults have trouble making sense of how they can give children equal consideration without simply mm-hmm. treating them the same as they do people their own age. And so it's easy right. to dismiss. It, it seems ridiculous. And so I'm wondering if uh, if you could make it clearer for me, in what ways do you think children are similar to adults and in what ways are they different? I think they have feelings. They're human beings, so they have feelings. I've seen a very young baby who was crawling and and some adults started to laugh because they thought he was cute. And it certainly looked like embarrassment that registered on his face. And I think the adults were surprised. They thought, really, this young, he could feel embarrassed. But I believe that's what it was. Um, I uh, So I think emotionally, they have the same repertoire. Um, and the difference is they're new to the world, so they don't understand what the limits are or what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. And so I think it's very important for for adults to know enough about infant and early childhood, infant development and early childhood, that they have reasonable expectations of a baby. So on the one hand, we believe that they're, they have a level of competency. On the other hand, we have to have reasonable expectations. So for instance, if I have my cell phone laying on the floor as I'm sitting on the floor near a baby who's crawling and the baby comes over and tries to grasp it, it would be unreasonable for me to expect that the baby's not going to put it in her mouth because a baby of a certain age, that's what they do. They explore everything orally. That's that's what I would expect. Just the same as I would expect toddlers, some toddlers anyway, who like to climb, to, if there's nothing appropriate for them to climb on, for them to find something to climb on, maybe the dining room table, you know, or maybe the maybe pushing a stool over to the kitchen counter. So I wouldn't get upset if I saw them doing that. I would think, hmm, this environment's not really supporting their curiosity. What can I do? What can I provide that is appropriate, if that makes sense? Well, what I think I'm hearing you say is that children and, and babies experience the same emotions that we do as adults. They are different only in that um, it is difficult for them to articulate what they're feeling. They lack experience mm-hmm. um, and they're underdeveloped. Um, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of people, 
generalize, they see that and then they generalize, well, they must not be able to feel embarrassed or and emotions that are so subtle. And so they're not taken seriously. And you're saying, um, we can observe them and see that they're feeling that. And that is the reason why, uh, we should put more thought into how we engage them. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of what we practice, for instance, in, in practice in classes and what we try to teach people about is the importance of observation mm-hmm. to, so for instance, if I was working with a parent of a newborn baby and the baby cried and I sensed that the parent was anxious with the cry, which many new parents are, uh, I would first ask them to slow down. As, as Magda said, unless you're plucking a baby up out of a fire, you don't have to rush toward the baby because rushing can only compound their upset. Imagine if you were upset and somebody who is wanting to help you came rushing at you. I would, I would think that would, you know, make you even more agitated. So the sense of introducing some peacefulness to the situation. So I would advise that parent to move very slowly toward the baby to come to the baby uh, and pause and first observe, not immediately pluck the baby up just by the baby will see the parent and just, that might be enough for the baby to calm a little bit. And then if not, to tell the baby what they're what you're going to do before you do it. I'm going to pick you up now. You're very upset. I'm going to pick you up and hold you. And then pause for a moment, what we call tarry time, T-A-R-R-Y. So pause so the baby can take in and process what's been said. All Those three steps, the moving slowly, the telling the baby what's about to happen, and then the tarry or the pause. If parents don't do anything other than that, it helps to create a sense of peacefulness. The child knows what to expect, what's going to happen next, and it introduces a, a sense of calm that might not otherwise have been there. Um, so it sounds like uh, parents should uh, slow down, uh, question their own assumptions, and I also think, uh, question, why are they doing what they're doing? So when we hear the cry, we become sort of alarmed or maybe anxious uh, about the judgments that other adults are putting on us. I think there's a lot, uh, you know, we, we parent, uh, not in a vacuum, but in a community and uh, maybe sense that other parents are judging us. And so we want to make sure to... Uh, to make our child stop crying as quickly as possible, or we might look like a bad parent. Um, and you're urging some caution there. Uh, you don't need to rush this. In any intimate relationship, it's not about being efficient. None of us, if I'm upset, I don't want somebody to be efficient with me. I want them to understand me. We all want to be understood by the person or persons who care for us or about us. I don't want to be handled to, you know, feel better quickly. I just want somebody to understand. <laughs> Babies are no different. So, uh, but I I understand your point there, and I think, you know, sometimes parents and others can get into a feeling of uh, of self consciousness. Oh, my baby's upset. My toddler's upset. So the quicker I can get this to quiet down, the better parent I am. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, I'm doing a good job kind of thing. Well, you know what? Sometimes it's, it, it takes a while. And to figure out why the child is upset. And sometimes, especially young babies, sometimes they just need to cry. So to release tension or whatever it might be. So who am I to say how long that should be? The baby should be able to cry until they're all done, which is not to say that therefore I just leave the baby crying on their own. I'm going to hold the baby, but I would say to the baby, well, you've got a lot, you've got a lot to tell me here or to convey. I'm going to hold you until you calm, until you feel better. But I, I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to put a timer on and say, okay, time's up. But this, this notion of efficiency, we talk about this a lot in my groups, um, where does this come from, this idea of, you know, the quicker I can sweep this away, <laughs> the better. No, at first we need to understand why and to help the baby, the toddler, anybody that we care about to convey a sense that I'm here for you, I'm listening, and I'm going to stay with you in the trenches with you uh, until, until, you're, until you're feeling better. And if you're hungry... I'll feed you. If you need to rest, I'll lay you down to rest. But it's not about quick, quick, let's tidy this up. That's a different message. Um, so you've talked a little bit about showing restraint rather than quickly intervening or rescuing a child. Um, in the book, you also talk, it's important for us not to problem solve for babies. And we should um, emphasize simplicity over stimulation in the toys that we put in front of them. Um why shouldn't adults aim to educate and entertain and do everything they can to make children happy? Well, first of all, if, if our goal is to make our child happy all the time, we're going to fail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nobody's happy all the time. And what is happy? Really, what is happy? Um, but I, I would say I would define happy or contentment as being engaged, having a life that I can engage with, and I think that's the same for an adult, a baby, or a toddler. So our task is to create an environment that the baby or the toddler can engage in. So we are thoughtful about the objects that we put in the play area. Um, We don't overload it with too many things. Uh, We don't put out things for a baby that are too complex and are more appropriate for a toddler. Um, If we see, for instance, that the toddler is starting to climb, well, maybe we'll go outside where there's something that she can climb on. And we view playtime as a time when a lot of important learning is happening, that there's enjoyment. Definitely there's enjoyment happening and pleasure and fun. Uh, but really, the children are learning how to learn. They're learning about cause and effect. They're learning a lot of important things. And you as a teacher can imagine, I would think, can relate to this. Mm-hmm. So that by the time they get to school, they're going to have these these skills that are going to serve them well. One of them being of tenacity, like that baby I mentioned who figured out a way. You know, I can't get to the toy, so I'm going to figure out a way to get the toy to me kind of thing. Um, they're, they're developing their fine motor skills. Um, 
uh, cause and effect. When I put this box on top of the other, it topples, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but if we as adults look at the child's playtime as a time when, oh my, I have to entertain them, make sure they're entertained, I'm inserting myself into a situation and making myself important in a way that I should not be. I need to be emotionally available. I need to be paying attention um, and making sure that the environment is completely safe and is cognitively challenging, etc. But my task isn't to entertain or to be the educator in quotation marks because the baby, the toddler will learn learning will happen. That's the byproduct of their playing. But we don't have to be the teacher. They don't need to be taught how to play. But when children are plunked down in front of devices, uh, what they, you know, spend a lot of time in front of an iPad or a television, for instance, or have toys that um, are close-ended, so they have sort of one function, they light up or you push a button and they move and that's mm-hmm. sort of all you can do with them. The child comes to view playtime as entertainment time mm-hmm. and they're inert, just like we're inert in front of the television. Um, so the rule of thumb that Magda Gerber taught was that the play objects, the toys, should be completely passive and it is the child who activates them. The child is active. Conversely, if the toy is very, very active, if it lights up, if it moves, if if it talks and squeaks, children in response are very passive and Mm -hmm. not very much exploration happens. Is it difficult to find toys like that nowadays? In the old days, there were no toys. I did a little tiny bit of Googling and research sort of who invented these toys, these crazy toys in quotation marks. And it was really when the first televisions came on the market, someone thought, oh, here's an opportunity, these commercials, let's sell something. And I believe Mr. Potato Head was the first or one of the first toys. So toys were not created by infant child development experts. They were created by marketers. And so people who are who are creating things that seem very attractive to an adult, but not necessarily <laughs> wonderful for a child. In the old days, it was open the kitchen cupboard, go outside, plant some twigs or acorns or, you know, something, um, some pots and pans and some wooden spoons and have at it, you know. And so we still use object, simple objects like that. Uh, things that can be found in the kitchen or the kitchen supply store, or uh, I have some funny PVC pipe for the toddlers. Um, uh, but here, here's an interesting example. I, for the toddlers, I had some colored uh, bottle caps from glass milk bottles of different colors. So one day a toddler came in and he picked up two of them and he put one on each ear and For 20 minutes, he was walking around the room uh, like they were headphones, pretending that they were headphones. And he was having a conversation to himself and then to other people, trying to put these on other people's ears. Mm -hmm. And then somebody else picked up the same kind of objects, the same two different bottle caps or one different bottle caps, and she was using them as a little cup to 
to, you know, for dramatic play, pretending to drink. And we talked about, you know, the mom said, if I'd gone to a toy store and gotten, you know, Buzz Lightyear headset, that's all that that Buzz Lightyear headset would have been able to be, be used for, you know. Whereas he took these two bottle caps and created this other use for for them. So these same simple objects children can use for several years. You know, two, three, over two years, two, three, four years, the same objects, but they start to use them in more and more complex ways. Um, I think you're... You're giving new parents a lot to think about, right? So we've talked about some different scenarios that may come up for new parents, uh, balancing texting or talking on the phone, um, attending to the needs of your child, what kinds of toys, um, if you even call them that, you're putting in front of your child. Um, Have you found that there are changes that are more difficult for parents to make uh, living in the culture that we do? I think the slowing down part, Uh, You know, I've been accused of being precious before. (laughs) I was speaking to a group of parents, and I was talking about slowing down the importance of that. And uh, I mentioned earlier about, you know, somebody trying to get out of the house to work and get two children, a toddler and an infant, to child care. And so this parent said, I just don't see how that's possible. I don't think I'll ever get out to work if I'm moving more slowly at their pace. And another parent spoke up and said, I have a toddler, I have a new baby, I have to get them out to child care so I can get to work in the morning. She said, and I've been practicing slowing down and I can tell you that when I do, there aren't, there rarely is a meltdown because I'm going at a pace that's peaceful for them that they can keep up with. But when I'm running late and I have to try to hurry them along and somebody falls apart, somebody gets irritable, and then the having to stop and tend to them and help them calm ends up taking a lot longer than if I just moved slowly to begin with. So this is sometimes hard for people to believe. And it's also hard for them, for, not necessarily hard, but sometimes people are surprised by how something really that simple can have such an impact. Mm-hmm. But over and over, people report how much of an impact it does have. And simple things can take a lot of practice because it doesn't come naturally to all of us to move slowly. So it's not that it's simple. So, oh yeah, you can make that change just like that. It requires practice, but um, I think just starting to be conscious about it, trying it on and seeing how it feels. Um, Although Magda Gerber, she founded the first Rise Center in LA, um, almost 40 years ago. Um, but, uh, I think with your book and, uh, the publicity around that, um, some people are comparing this approach to parenting to other parenting trends, um, perhaps unfairly. Uh, so we hear about helicopter parents and tiger moms and, uh, all of these things. Um, has Rye become more popular in recent years? Um, why might that be? And, uh, where do you see this approach in another 40 years time? I, I, I think that more people have found out about Rye. I think it was always popular to those who were fortunate enough to discover it. But it's the, it's the Internet. I really do think it's the Internet. People are learning about it, finding out about it that way. I just taught a course, and I had two students from Australia and one from India. And, 
you know, this wouldn't have happened pre-internet. Um, and so that's one reason. And, and I think that it will continue to grow in this way because the principles are enduring. It's not helicopter parenting is, is a result of, I think of a parent's anxiety. So they helicopter to Mm. relieve their anxiety. They stay close. This approach is beneficial for the babies, but also for the parents. First of all, for the parents, Um, because if the parents can relax and have real practical tools that they understand and that they can put into practice, they can see how they begin to relax. They can see and feel how they become more confident and can figure out answers to challenges that inevitably come up on their own. They don't have to consult an expert. They become the expert or more of an expert because they're always the expert of their own child. Um, and they're, and then they can see the benefit um, for their child, how their, their child feels more secure and easier to care for. So some of this, these other things like helicoptering, I think, are a result of um, some kind of concern on the part of the parent that they're trying to make up for. But it's really not to anybody's benefit. It's not addressing the underlying issue, which is the anxiety. Mm-hmm. So I do think that Rye is going to, from the looks of it, uh, you know, it, there's every reason to believe that it's going to continue to really spread all over the world. I think in its, you know, we could all benefit from learning how to be respectful, what it really means in an interaction with someone we care about. Um, everybody could benefit from that. The whole planet could. So I, I have every reason to believe it's going to continue to grow. And that'll be a good thing. Do you know anything right now about um, the children and, and adults who have, uh, who were, uh, well, let me rephrase this question. Um, have you followed any of the babies and children whose families have used the Rye approach um, into adulthood? Do we know what happens to these people? Uh, what are they like as adults? Only anecdotally, mm-hmm. I, I it would be lovely to do. So people have been talking about actually doing some, a research piece on it. Uh, I happen to have a, a right parent, but a parent in my class who was a baby in one of Magda's first classes. So this was a rye grand baby, I guess you could say. Um, but anecdotally of older teenagers and college age children um, that I know myself, I think that one thing they all share in common, because I've talked about it with their parents, is a, a very clear idea of what it means to be respectful to another human being and and in a very nuanced way, how little it takes to be disrespectful of someone else, to mm. diminish someone else. So they got that. (laughs) And then another piece of it is they seem to have uh, a very good ability to talk about their feelings, to be able to be articulate. It's not as though they find themselves feeling sad or depressed and 
can't really figure out the thread to where it began. They know. And, you know, this is my, I'm, this is, I'm guessing here, but I wonder if that is the benefit of their parents being in the habit of narrating. You're upset, you know, oh, acknowledging yeah. the upset, narrating, giving voice to that so that um, they can begin to recognize, oh, I'm having a feeling from a very young age, rather than trying to squelch some of these maybe darker emotions in the young baby's crying. So somebody plugs a pacifier in their mouth. The toddler's having a meltdown, is very angry about something and is scolded and told that's not okay. You know, hush up kind of thing. Instead of, I know you're very angry because you wanted to play with those, but those are not a toy. So I'm not going to let you, I can't let you kind of thing. So this, this habit of putting, you know, giving voice and words to these feelings, I have to think that that has something to do with it. And that to me is, uh, is key for a person's emotional well-being and health. Um, Rice also been associated with some of its more famous adherents, um, former White House press secretary, Dee Dee Myers, Jamie Lee Curtis and Jason Alexander. Um, actually, those two have written really favorably about your book. Um, I worry that some critics might claim that Rye's relevance is limited to parents living in elite communities. Um, can you say a little bit more about how Rye is compatible for parents of different lifestyles or economic means or political views? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you asked about that. Uh, well, the celebrities are the ones who happen to get attention. Mm-hmm. So they're... But, well-known or, or the celebrity parents are a tiny, minute percentage of the overall group who are practicing Rye. There are thousands and thousands of parents and professional people practicing Rye who are not celebrities. So it's not, it wouldn't be a uh, good idea to join a class to meet a celebrity then? Oh my goodness, no. <laughs> <laughs> nope, you'd be disappointed. <laughs> no. You know, uh, it, 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 I... I wonder if some actors, uh, if if it doesn't just make sense to them because of this observation piece, because to my mind, a good actor is one who observes their partner in the scene and responds. Mm. Right. So it might come quite naturally to them for some of them, but uh, they really have not been, uh, when you can, when you, if you were going to look at it mathematically, there have not been that many celebrities, but the people, the non-celebrities just don't get the attention. That's what it comes down to, and it, and and Rye, while it has its roots in Hungary, uh, certainly, and sort of European traditions, we talk about it in class. Certainly, there are cultural differences within families, or or sort of countries of origin that that people might say, "Oh, that's really quite unfamiliar. We wouldn't do that um, uh, in my family or in my." Uh, home country, but then we'll have a conversation about it, and and it will sort of tease out uh, some some very, I think, interesting elements about the concepts of whether it's about respect or etc. Et but I, I, my experience has been because I have taught people from a lot of different cultures, is that when this approach touches someone 
it touches them very, very deeply uh, because because it's giving people tools to connect with a baby in a very caring and respectful and uh, very deep way, I think. And that's sometimes very abstract for people because a baby can't speak, you know? So uh, a lot of people, they think, how do you connect with somebody who can't speak to you? So mm-hmm. um, I find that the tools and the principles are are universal. That doesn't mean that every person who practices Rye is going to incorporate all aspects of it, um, but they might try on everything mm-hmm. and and then use what fits, what, what seems right to them. And you mentioned but earlier. We certainly work with all populations. You know, we there's a Rye associate who works with a a migrant farm workers child care center in Northern California, and I'm gonna I'm excited. I'm gonna um, be working with an early Head Start group. So, um, really, as especially as Rye grows and it, and expands and and also grows more teachers, quite honestly. Um, that we'll have the opportunity to work with more and more people of different backgrounds and cultures. Well, that I think is really exciting. Um, Deborah, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time. So I'll just ask you one more question and that's, what are you working on right now? Oh, well, I, I have my own practice now, uh, teaching and speaking and consulting with parents and child care centers and, helping more and more people learn about this approach that I found so valuable to my family that I'm looking at as many ways as possible to deliver it to as many people as possible. So I've just recently created audio workshops that people can download and listen to whenever they want to over and over again. I'm going to be doing more of that and um, some online workshops as well. And, now, now with some new technologies, I, I feel so they can be helpful to us to really deliver this information to more people who before now wouldn't have had access to it. So that's what I'm excited to be working on. Well, I, I wish you the best of luck as you utilize uh, new ways of sharing your message. Um, Deborah. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Trevor. I did as well. All right. Take care.